this thing with the Asbury College it just chases me. Um, Pat and I came to Christ in the 70s. We knew this thing that that actually happened at that college in 1970. And it happened about five times, or four times before that even. So it's not an uncommon thing that occurs there. But when I heard that it was being shut down, I felt a great sink in my heart. So I did research on it. It's not been shut down. They've chosen to disperse it. And they've moved it off the campus into cities all over Kentucky. It started, they just said, we can't stay here. We need to move on. So it's not over. And uh, this uh, Jesus Revolution film that's come up, it's just like all the old hippies like Pat and I were like, yeah, man. You know, we're just getting into it. But I can say that in kind of a humorous way, but it's not been humorous. It's been very moving. It's been like a reconnecting with something. And uh, I mean, yeah, we're probably flashing back into the past, but it's, it's the amazing things that God did. And so I just encourage you with the prayer meeting tonight, let's, let's be expectant people. Lord, come. Come and meet with us and touch us. And uh, so, yeah, let's, uh, let's dig in. If God is moving, let's welcome God to us and uh, engage. So <clears throat> I actually asked Dave Moore to pray for me this morning. I was so jittery from being like all kind of, ah. I said, Dave, you've got to pray for me. So he did. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> we, we have to stick together. The, the Daves have to stick together, so it's all good. <laughs> Last thing I'll say before I dive in is the shirt. Um, my wife seen me this morning in my shirt, and she, which she helped me buy on the weekend, and she's I didn't think I'd ever see you wearing shirts like that. And so, uh, so just so you know, uh, it's not only a, my keen sense of fashion. It was $14.99 at Mark's Work World. So uh, <laughs> look cool and save money. That's what I think. You know. <clears throat> this, this study that we're doing, Winning the War in Our Minds, it is, uh, it's been an incredible journey for me personally. Uh, when Kurt talked to us way back and said we want to do this study and we were given the resources and the links to the videos and I began to watch the teaching videos and read the book and look through the manuals and so on. It's just like, wow, it's just stirring inside my heart because I really feel that I need to be growing in my life. I thought, yeah, there's things in my mind. I've got to get these things sorted out. I found there was way too much worry, way too much distraction in my life. I thought, no, Lord, I want, I want better. I want to be deeper and stronger in these things. So it's just been an incredible journey, this reoccurring truth. I just feel the studies that we're doing, these Sunday morning preaches and what we're doing and the life groups that are using it, it's like we're kind of walking in a circle, if I could say it that way, and we're looking at a common issue and a common truth that deals with the issue and we're kind of doing a, a journey around it, looking at it from different angles. And it's kind of like a reoccurring process and a reoccurring truth, even though there's many different viewpoints that kind of make it more meaningful as we go around. And I do appreciate the study very much. I'm thankful that God would lead our, our preaching team to uh, dive into these things that's so, so helpful to us. And so, great journey of... Uh, dealing with strongholds in our minds and, and seeing truth uh, renew our minds and so our thinking processes are healthier. Now to start this morning, I want to just uh, look at an Old Testament story that 
um, is kind of like a, a perfect picture of what happens inside the human mind. And so <clears throat> uh, the story is taken from Numbers chapter 13, verse 27 to 32. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to kind of tell it out of the, the biblical passage. And this, this story is set in the time when the people of Israel, they've come out of the slavery of Egypt. They've made about a, uh, a, a fair journey already. And they're coming up probably about a year into that journey. Uh, and they've come to the southern tip of the promised land. And they, they can now go in. And so they send a scouting party in to check it out and see if it's a good place to live and if it's a safe place for them to get in. Can they, can they get in there? Is it going to work? And now I want you to remember, just think back, these people that are standing here on the brink of going into the promised land, they have seen the plagues of Egypt, they've seen their households delivered in the great Passover when the firstborn across a nation died, but those who marked their their doorposts with the blood, uh, they were not affected by that. They saw that. They experienced that. They saw the parting of the sea. We sang about that this morning. They seen a provision of water and food in the desert where there was no water and food. Um, they saw the hands up defeat of the Amalekites. Remember the story? Moses' hands are up. As long as they're up, they're winning. And when the hands go down, they lose. They saw that. Uh, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle given to him, the visible presence of God. Think about that. When they got up in the morning and looked out of their tent, there was a pillar of smoke over the tabernacle. It was God. And at night when the lights were out and the desert was dark, if they opened their tent, there was a pillar of fire. God was there. He was in their midst. And so they seen this. And now as they come to the promised land, they're going to send in scouts and spies to sea, and they go all the way through the land up to the Jordan River, out to the Mediterranean coast. They do quite a circuit. There's 12 people in the, in the, in the uh, scouting team from the tribes of Israel, one from each, I guess. And out they go, and they come back with their report, and they said, man, and they gave the report to Moses. They said, uh, uh, we went into the land which you sent us. It flows. It does flow with milk and honey. I thought that'd be a sticky mess. But uh, you know, it, it here's its fruit. They had one cluster of grapes. It took two men to carry it. They had all kinds of vegetables, and like the land is fertile. It's a beautiful place. Is there water? Is there trees, etc.? Yep, yep. The answers were yes. And then this terrible word comes out of the mouth of eleven of them. They said, but. It's all good, but uh, the people who live there are powerful. Their cities are fortified and very large. We saw the descendants of Anak. This was some kind of humanoid creature monster thing, these giants. They saw them. They're there, and then there's the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Norwegians, all there in that <laughs> difficult. And maybe that was the giants. And Caleb stopped the people that were doing it. He said, whoa, wait a minute. He said, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. Let's go. But these other ones said, no, we can't attack these people. They're, they're, they're stronger than we are. They, uh, they, they, and then these people, they went out into the camp and began to tell the negative story. They spread this negativity through the camp of Israel. And you know the story. They don't go in. 
They all saw the same thing. They all saw the miracles. They all saw the giants. But one guy said, God's with us. Let's go. Later in his life, 45 years later, this 85-year-old guy says, um, this is in uh, Joshua 14, verses 10 to 12. Caleb, see, there's the hero. He says, uh, <clears throat> I'm just as strong now as I was then. 85 years old, he said, I'm still ready to do it, you know. How many 85-year-olds feel like you're ready to take on giants, you know what I'm saying? Like, is <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. That guy probably would, you know. There's a certain amount of delusion as you get older, but, uh, <laughs> but not with Caleb. And listen, it's not a, it, Caleb knew it's not about physical strength. It's God. God is with us. We can take this country. Now, it's the filter. It's the grid. It's our lens. How do you see what's happened? How do you see what's in your, what's in your face as a challenge? How do you see it? Is it just you? Or is it you and God? Um, I, I change filters in my Toyota RAV. I, I do a lot of my own servicing work. And uh, I took it out, and I was pretty embarrassed when I pulled it out. I thought, oh, you've been in here for a while. <laughs> it was pretty thick. Your filter, how things come into you, if your filter is clogged, if it's, if it's dirty, the, the incoming stuff is affected by the filter. I'm going to do some more explaining about this, but when we talk about get the renewing of your mind, we need God to renew things that are inside of our brain function, inside of our heart. They affect how we respond. It can be negative or positive. Uh, we need to really think this through. So we've re repeatedly heard in this study and it's such a great thing to just let it keep rolling inside of us. The dominant thoughts, your, your big opinions, your big attitudes, they will actually control your life. So if you look at where you're standing right now and kind of look down the road of your life, if I keep responding to the challenges in my life the way I am right now, what will it look like further down the road? What will my journey be like? When we think about our present condition and our current beliefs, are we healthy in the mind and heart? Do I like the direction that I'm going? Uh, we were challenged early in the study, and I would just say, this should be a rhythm in our life. Think about what you're thinking about. What's your waking up thought? What's your first respond? Is it worry or trust? We need to think about those things. Um, so when we talk about reframing, my title today is Reframing. This is not about mental gymnastics or the power of positive thinking. It's actually the application of truth. Knowing truth, believing truth, applying truth. Now I'm going to talk about, there's four kind of headings that we're going to kind of work through this morning, more time on some than others, but there's this term, cognitive bias. Cognitive bias. It's how you view things. 
What's, what's the grid? It's your grid. When things come to you, how do you interpret what you see? That's cognitive bias. We'll explain more. We're going to have fun with this one. It's control. In the service this morning, we're going to identify all the control freaks in the room. You're going to be exposed. And people are going to know who you are. But control is an issue. It affects how you see things. Here's a tough one for us, and it's going to be hard for some of us. When God didn't do it, when you ask for something and God didn't answer your prayer, what is that doing to your grid? How does that affect how you view your future? How does that affect the way you think? And then this, it's a positive, kind of this overarching thing the author calls, it's kind of an interesting term, I kind of chuckled when I first read it, but he calls it God's collateral goodness. When God's so good, he does good things with things that we would think, oh, that's really negative. Now, the human brain is a powerful thing, but it does have limitations, and so sometimes our limitations cause us to kind of categorize things, try to, this is that. So we, we, we like a rule of thumb. You know what that means? Like something I can apply to situations where it'll help me make sense of it. And so we see this and this and this. Okay, that means it's that. We do it with people. I see the way you dress. I see the way you talk. I see the car that you drive. I see what you do for work. So I take you and I slide you across my grid and I put you in the slot where you belong. You're that kind of person. I'll be honest with you, those things are often flawed. And we're making decisions and responding with things that actually are not true. And that's why when we say, oh God, renew my mind, help me to get that clutter out so that I see clearly. Um, yeah. Now I've got to say this, I'm not trained as a... Um, uh, a, neuro, a neurosurgeon or something. Like, I'm not a trained counselor. I'm not educated in psychology. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a mental health worker. I'm not a counselor. So there's many things about brain function I don't know. And for me to use some of this language, it would maybe give you the opinion that, oh, Dave is very well spoken. Uh, I'm just making this up. Um, <laughs> but I've lived life and I can see areas that I really need to grow in. I'm challenged by this because I see where I've been a worrier and where I've been not trusting. And I realize God needs to reframe my mind. He needs to work on my grid. I want to grow. Uh, sometimes the skewed and unhealthy ways we interpret people in, or events or circumstances or even the news, we run it through a grid and sometimes it's really flawed. And it leaves us with a bad setting. Um, did you ever have an opinion about somebody? Did you meet somebody, maybe even early on in your acquaintance, you kind of thought, oh, slot. You're that kind of person. I heard what you said. I saw what you did. I see what you wear. And on and on and on. And you slip them in your slot. And then... At a later point, as you've gotten to know them better, maybe in a different setting, you find yourself, how many of you have said this, I was wrong about you. 
Do you ever say that? Do you ever say, oh, you know, man, I was wrong about you. And sometimes it's negative and sometimes it's positive. Oh, I thought you were nice and <laughs> you're not, you know. I was wrong about you. I'm just saying, like we can have a wrong opinion about people and then how much access we give them to our life, how much we really connect with them, how much their opinion matters, etc., etc., etc. It's, it's controlled by the grid where we put them in the box. The Apostle Paul, one of the great champions of the New Testament, had this issue. He went on a missionary tour. He had a young man with him who was uh, John Mark, who traveled with him. But at some point in the mission, we don't know exactly how or what happened, but John Mark left the team. He quit, and he went home. How many of you have had the experience of having a quitter around you, and when they quit, you put them in a slot. Now oh, you're a quitter. Like that's one of the worst things a human being can ever be. Oh, they're a quitter. And Paul just, when they went to go on their next mission tour, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he wanted to bring John Mark again, and Paul said, no way, no how. That guy is a loser. He's not on this team. And Paul was so stubborn about it, he split the team. And Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul took Silas. But later in life, to Paul's great credit, in one of his letters, he said, Oh, when you come, bring John Mark. He's of value to me. He changed. He, he had to say, I was wrong about you. Can you see why the devil works so hard to mess up our thinking? It can break a relationship. It can break a friendship. It can split a community. It can split a family. Because we've built this grid, and so when the, we've said that person is that kind of person, and we will never allow them a place in our life. <clears throat> On a lighter side of this, two guys from this church several years ago loaded two very fast, older sport bikes on a trailer and trailered them down to the Black Hills. And when they got there, I, if their wives were present this morning, I would just encourage them not to listen. They did ride very, very, very fast and enjoyed the highways and the byways. And when two men are on two very fast motorcycles, it's no longer a, a trip from here to there. It's a road race, man. Like, we are racing. And... Uh, of course, we always kept it in the speed limits, but uh, we raced, and we had a blast, and it was so much fun, but I, I, I had numerous times when I had this go through my brain, so we'd be, oh, did I say me? Oh, sorry. <laughs> so we're going along. Anyway, that's out now, but uh, the other guy is sitting in this general area over here. <laughs> But we, we both had full face helmets and we'd pull up to an intersection and we'd stop and we'd be looking at each other and all you can see is this much. And so you're thinking about what he's thinking about when he's looking at you like, oh, you think your bike's faster than mine? You know, you think you look cooler in your leathers than I do in mine? You know, that kind of stuff. And you build this whole opinion about this guy and all you can see is his eyes. 
It was usually pretty flawed. Yeah, it was completely flawed. So all of our interactions, the devil works hard to separate us from people that we need to be connected to. How many of you, this is not a, a trick question, this is not a, a test, but how many of you, don't, it's not a, not a chance for you to show off, but how many of you know that in your wiring that God's put in you, that you have an administrative gifts. You, you have an ability to see what needs to happen and who you need to get involved in getting the thing fixed. How many of you would, you can just kind of wave your hand up a little bit. How many of you know, yeah, I've got, okay, there's a bunch. How many know you've got kind of an ability to be an administrative person? The Bible talks about that being a worthwhile gift. Again, anybody in this area? There, I noticed some over here. Yeah, okay. A little honesty there, good kind of a different level of the same kind of thing, but how many of you know God's put a calling on your life and leadership? You have leadership ability. You can lead people. Again, you're, you're getting antsy now. You're, oh, the same hands are going up. <laughs> you're so brave. I was going to make you stand up now, but I don't think I'd be pushing it, so I won't. But, uh, so all the people that put one hand or the other up, these are the control freaks in our midst. <laughs> Well, it's kind of true, right? Like, if you, if, you have, if you have administrative ability, the dark edge of it is that you start to take control. There's a, there's a man sitting over here that I've known for many years. Uh, I was on staff at the Bible college when he was there. And I used to always laugh about him. He'd come into a room, and he would just like... And he would... And he'd get the tables and chairs just right. He'd, he'd organize things and put things together. He just couldn't help himself. But he was an administrator. He was a brilliant administrator, but he was always fixing things. Now, we, we can laugh about this, but there can be a dark edge to this. And the dark edge is that uh, we can start to control our children in unhealthy ways. We start reaching in too far and, and we start organizing and start running people's lives per year. We, we can go too far with it and it becomes a problem. But there's also another part of this problem. When we, when we have a vision of how things should be and we, we have a picture in our mind what we think God should do, this is what should happen, uh, and it doesn't happen, we're unsettled. We, we, can, we can get upset. But, but, but I, we need to say to all of us, and listen, everybody's got a bit of a control freak in them. We all do. Some is just more refined than others. God has never said you're supposed to be in control. We're not supposed to be in control. An actual fact is we're not in control. You weren't in control what happened 10 years ago. You aren't in control with what's happening in your life right now, and in many ways, you are not in control of your future. I mean, there's many farmers in our midst, and I say this with the utmost respect because I grew up on a farm. But a farmer can get the right seed, the right fertilizer, take care of the land, do all these things. But you know what? The farmer is not in control because something has to fall out of the sky and make it all work. We're not in control. And when we think we should be in control and we feel like we're slipping out of control and that God isn't coming through to help us be in control, 
it gets dodgy. We start to unravel. Folks, I'm afraid that we can actually deteriorate in our faith. And I've seen an edge show up in myself and others where we felt something didn't happen the way it was supposed to. And as hard as we prayed that it would happen, it didn't happen. And we began to crumble. Oh, we're still doing life, but there's something wrong inside. There's like a chip on the shoulder, Pernier. The Apostle Paul uh, was... Uh, he repeatedly said, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. You could just see he wanted to, this is the center of the world. Rome, we don't, we don't realize this now, but if you took Washington, D.C., Red Square in Moscow, Beijing, uh, maybe London, and put it, all that international control into one pile, in those days, it was Rome. The Rome military, they dominated the battlefield. Their commerce was incredible. They, they built roads across nations, and the roads, some of them are still there. They just, they just built the world. And Paul said, I need to go and present Christ there. I need to be preaching Christ in Rome. He wanted to go to Spain and Rome. I, we know he went to Rome, but we're not sure if he ever did get to Spain. Some say they think he did. Others say don't think so. So Paul did go to Rome. But I'm not sure if he went there the way he planned. He was in chains. He's going to grow to Rome, and I think he's there for about two years, and then he's going to be executed. So he's chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to a Roman soldier. But he wasn't just chained to any old Roman soldier. He was actually chained to a Praetorian guard. This is the Navy SEAL. There was about 9,000 to 10,000 Praetorian guards in the Roman Empire, and they were the elite of their military force. They were actually the guardians of Caesar's house. They, they guarded Caesar's palace. If anything broke out that was a major problem across the Roman Empire, the Praetorian guards could be flown in <laughs> to take care of it. So he's chained to these guys 24-7. I did a lot of reading about this, and it's estimated by one guy estimated if he was chained to one man in four-hour shifts for this number of time, roughly two years plus, <clears throat> 4,200 men or more were chained to the Apostle Paul. And they heard about Jesus Christ. These guys were the movers and shakers of the Roman Empire. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And I want you to know, my dear brothers, this is New Living Translation in my book here, so I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. What? You're chained in a room but I am chained to the Praetorian Guard. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. They heard about Christ. I got teary when I read this. I thought, for goodness sakes. 
So if, I, if Paul was a control freak and he thought, well, I should be in Rome and I should be out preaching on the steps of the Colosseum and I'm chained in a house, God, what are you doing? But Paul said, do you realize this was God's plan? He would actually, the, the, the word of Christ was actually filtering into Caesar's palace for crying out loud. God was working. Because of my imprisonment, most of the believers uh, here in Rome have gained confidence because they see me suffering and they think, we can do this. Who would have thought God's way of doing it, it wasn't maybe the way Paul would have thought of it, and you need to just stop and think in your life, things that have been happening to you or have happened to you, and you thought, oh, wrong. Maybe God help us to see it more clearly. Maybe we're missing something. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 39. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to highlight a number of scriptures through this passage. And we need to hear this. To adjust this bias that we have in our brain, we need to hear this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Some of us need to hear that. Even right now, you may be going, oh, what's happening? And you're forgetting that God said in his word, I've got you. Everything that's happening, I'm already here. You say, well, I can hardly believe that. I know. I struggle with it too. But it's true. It's actually true. Later in the same passage, he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the one who could speak the universe into existence says, you're my kid, I'm with you, what are we anxious about? If all of that power, all of that ability, all of the love that we see displayed on the cross, all of that, he says, I'm for you, then why would I be disturbed? What's happened to my grid? When I look at these things, why am I getting in such a state? This is what truth says. Later on, verse 34, talks about Christ dying and who's raised to life. And this, when I read this, I actually wept. He was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Listen, are you hearing what I'm reading? Jesus Christ is in heaven before the throne praying for you, praying for you, praying for you right now. He prays for you. He has you on his hand. He carries your name in a sense, and he's praying for you. Jesus did an amazing thing with a guy, a very flawed man called Peter. He said to Peter, 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 <laughs> Peter, Peter, Peter. You know, you can just see him sometimes. Poor, poor old Peter. He said, the devil wants to have you and sift you like wheat. Peter, the devil wants to beat the living crap out of you. That's the modern vernacular, sort of. But he said, Peter, I've prayed for you. 
What happened to Peter? He failed terribly. He denied Christ. What happened after that? Jesus brought him back up. And when he was in that garden by himself, poor old Peter says he wept bitterly. He's just sobbing. He's, I blew it. I completely blew it. And in the courts of heaven and in our day, but then it was in person, Jesus prayed for Peter. He's praying for you. You know, we have lots of people say, well, Brother Dave, I'll be praying for you. And I'm so thankful that many people do pray for us. But I have one who never forgets. He makes intercession. Later on in that same passage, it says, he will never leave us. He'll always be with us. Always, nothing can separate us from this lover of our heart and soul. The closing two things I want to say, and these will be simple and brief. The struggle that we have with unanswered prayers when God didn't do it. I want you to turn around and, and look back in your mind. Think back in your memory. Can you, probably most of us have something if we stop and think where you think, well, yeah, back there in whatever year that was, we prayed about that or, and it didn't seem to happen. Or I prayed it that it would happen this way and it didn't happen that way. God didn't come through. He didn't answer our prayers. And then just going to park beside that thought, God's collateral goodness. That beyond what we can see, God does really, really good things. So to, not this last Friday, but the Friday before, I come into my office. We usually, the office is not open Friday. And it's quiet around there except for Noah and Cal Clark. And if Cal Clark is there, it's never quiet around there, I'm just telling you. How many have been on the receiving end of Cal's wonderful sense of humor? I don't think Cal's here today, so we won't tell him that I said this, okay? Just strike this off the video. Cal will hurt me if he's, you know. So it's quiet in there, and I'm doing my sermon, and I'm doing what I just said to us about going back and thinking. And I had, and again, this is partly because of the Asbury thing, the 1970 revival, the Jesus People movement. I talked to a couple this morning who, you know, they'll be, the elders will be visiting with them because they did go to a theater, <laughs> I'm just saying, and they went and seen the Jesus Revolution and they gave it a huge thumbs up. So I would say, if you can, Pat and I are hoping to go real quick and go and see it. But I went back to the 70s Pat and I had become Christians in 19, the spring of 1973, and it was, we were a mess. I mean, we'd lived a hard, hard, foolish life, and we were, we were damaged goods. And so that's the spring of 73. In the fall of 73, we go to Bible school. And we're like two, <laughs> like, what's happening, man? Like, you know, right on, you know, that kind of... We were just lost. I mean, Bible verses and teachers would say, turn to the book of something, and we're like, <laughs> you know, it was hard. And we had to do scripture memorization. Thousands of scriptures a week we had to memorize. No, it seemed like it, but it wasn't thousands. But I mean, you've done the things that we did to your brain. To remember something, it's just like, uh, 
the, you know, saying the verse, the, uh, anyway. So there we were at Bible school. Now Pat is pregnant, and she's having some issues with the pregnancy, but we're there, she's carrying a baby, and in the first or second week of school, she miscarried and we lost the baby. So I'm thinking, when I was sitting in my office, I thought, hmm, I may meet that baby someday. I've never met that baby. And it was hard. There was a, the Eston Hospital was fully functional at that time, beautiful little hospital, caring staff. The Christian community in Eston was strong and healthy. The church family was loving and caring. The Bible school students, we had so much love from our fellow students. So we weren't like alone and dying or, you know, poor us. No, it wasn't like that. But we're new Christians. We, we haven't walked far enough in faith to really know that we can trust God completely. And I got on my bike one night. She was in the hospital still, and I rode down to the River Hills by Riverside Park and walked up on a hill and sat down. And I wasn't like railing at God or like, how can you do this to me? It wasn't like that at all. But I remember what came out of me was, I don't understand. I don't understand. I never got an answer. But in 1976, after Pat and I went to Bible school together, side by side in the classroom, her in front, me in front, whatever, we studied together, we you know, went to chapels together, we did all of three years, just like a really close, brand new Christians, but we're really close. And it was so important for us. And when we graduated in 1976, and if I could have found a picture of Pat, I would have put it up. She's tiny, but she was like the Goodyear blimp, man. She was carrying a baby. <laughs> and that baby was born, and David is pastoring one of our churches, has a beautiful family. God's collateral goodness. Now, here's the curveball. And you may say, I don't know, but this is what I'm going to tell you. Many years later, my mom who is a godly woman, woman of prayer, said to me, Dave, when I knew Pat was carrying a baby, and especially when there were some concerns, and even more so, she said in the after, afterthought of it, I had prayed, Lord, if that baby is not healthy, take it home. We did a lot of really like rough drugs that would affect your conception. There could have been problems, and I think there were problems in the baby. God's collateral goodness. Now, saying all that to say, how do you frame your mind? How are you interpreting what's going on in your life? Is there faith in it, or fear and doubt, and maybe anger and resentment? Your cognitive bias, control issues, God's no? Maybe the misunderstanding of your own history? not really having a concept of God's collateral goodness. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on station. I'm at the finish line. <clears throat> Do we really believe that God can bring beauty out of ashes? Do you? Do you? 
Are you living life resentful or worried or angry? You don't tell people about it, but it's in here. We're going to worship. Pastor Kurt will close the service. But even as we go into a time of worship, if you need to take a knee and say, Lord, renew my mind. I'm thinking about things, I'm interpreting things in unhealthy ways. I want to win the war in my mind. I want to live with faith, not with fear. I'd like to pray with you before we begin to worship. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move amongst us. I understand one of the beautiful currents of the Asbury revival is people are repenting and returning to their first love. And Lord, there can be things in my mind that sort of steer me away from trusting my first love. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would, you would breathe on us and speak to us. As we worship, Lord, I pray your spirit would work in us. And if we need to, maybe tonight or later today even, just find some time and say, Lord, talk to me about what's going on in my mind. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.